Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members and guests at IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. You may be familiar with some of our faculty who I regularly get to have conversations with here on this podcast, but it's possible that some of you are not familiar with our newest member of the team, Dr. Tupa Guerra. She is the professor of ancient studies at Israel Bible Center and an expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And today we get to talk about one of those scrolls called the War Scroll. It is not a copy of anything that we would call a biblical book, but it is nevertheless something you will find to be very interesting. Joining Dr. Guerra and I are Dr. Yeshaya Gruber and Dr. Nicholas Shazer. And before we get too deep in the fascinating details about the war scrolls, let's find out from Dr. Guerra about the Dead Sea Scrolls and then jump into the content of what is actually in the war scroll and what kind of genre it falls into. Lean in and enjoy the conversation. There are Jewish religious texts. Most of them were copied between 300 before the Common Era up to around 70 in the Common Era. It's a bit difficult to date all the texts. And I maybe you guys noticed I said copied and not written because we are not sure when some of the texts were written. We know when they were copied. It's just like if you buy a Bible today that has been printed last year, it doesn't mean the texts were written last year. It just means that that copy is that it's recent. So it's the same for the scrolls. They are all religious texts and they have like this huge group of texts. And it was really one of the most amazing things we had in the 20th century to discover this group of texts because we have more than 15,000 fragments. And in the war scroll, I think it's fascinating because when the when I first heard about the war scroll, I thought about this epic text, just like a book from today, talking about war. And then there will be these descriptions of battles. And I thought, wow, that must be the most interesting and fun text to read. And I was very mistaken. I'm not, I don't mean it's not fun. It is interesting. It's fun. It's fascinating, but it's nothing like a a book from today that describes a war or something like that. So, the War Scroll. It was one of the first manuscripts to be published. It was discovered in 47, and it was published in 55, so very, very recent. It's the war between the Sons of Light and the Sons of Darkness. And that's interesting, because when we think, who are the Sons of Light and the Sons of Darkness? Well, we will have... Plenty to talk about those today. And the war is described in two parts. We have first the war against the Kitim, 
And it's a war that, according to the scrolls, would last for one day. And it describes all the moments of the battle and how it works. And then afterwards, we'll have, we are in this period, there will be some years to prepare for the next war. And the next war will be from 40 years. So overall, it's a big scheme of battles and how those battles are going to happen, how do, how we need how the preparations for the battles will need to happen, which which standards should be followed, with what should be written on the shields, which type of weapons should be used, all the details about how to prepare for this campaign that will ultimately lead to the defeat of evil on Earth. So it's a fascinating text, but it's nothing what what I, I expected when I first started reading about it. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the reasons why it was such an amazing find is because it sheds so much light on Second Temple Period Judaism, especially late Second Temple Period Judaism, and can be compared to the Gospels and Philo and, and other writings of this period. So it's incredibly interesting for anyone who's interested in that topic. And I just want to underline one thing that I think you said, which is that the war in the end, according to this scroll, lasts for 40 years, which is a significant period of time. So it's, uh, it is a kind of prefiguring, or at least many people read it as a prefiguring of an ultimate battle with cosmic ramifications between good and evil. But Nick, um, this kind of brings up already your course that you've done on the early chapters of Genesis. So maybe you have a thought or two about knowledge and good and evil. It's an interesting question, the idea of how we should be understanding things like good and evil vis-a-vis -vis knowledge in biblical thought. And in that case, it's not really about moral or ethical goodness or ethical evil, but rather this idea of um, chaos versus order. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil should really be understood as the tree of the, of the understanding of the difference between order and disorder, uh, order and chaos. So yeah, so there are some Hebraic nuances there that are different from what we might understand in our modern parlance of good versus evil. But I will say that much of the material that we see in, say, a book like Revelation, which is an apocalyptic text, is mirrored in the text of the War Scroll. And when we say apocalyptic, by the way, what we mean basically is an inbreaking of God into human history. Apocalypse is a Greek term. It comes from two words, apo and kalupsis. Apo means from or out of, and kalupsis is like something that's covered. So out of, out of being covered or uncovering, maybe revealed, which is why the book of Revelation is called the book of Revelation in many English-speaking circles. So that's what we mean by apocalyptic literature. And there are many instances in the War Scroll in which they talk about angels, you know, uh, about God breaking into history, about fighting side by side with angels to defeat cosmic forces. So I think that, that a lot can be said in favor of the idea that the War Scroll is an apocalyptic text. Usually these apocalyptic texts seem to relate to the end times, or at least we think they do. And so again, going back to Tupa's point about the battle between the sons or children of light, the Bnei Ol, and the sons or children of darkness, Bnei Choshech, that will finally, you know, resolve things on the earth, or it seems to be implying that. So I, I do think this is very closely connected to apocalyptic literature of the Second Temple period, although, um, you know, that's in, to a certain extent our category, and, you know, there, there are overlaps to other genres. 
Have you heard of this scroll? Like Tupa, I think it is an interesting one. And for anyone not familiar with it, let's hear Tupa read the first few lines to get a flavor of what's going on. For the instructor, the rule of the war. The first attack of the Sons of Light shall be undertaken against the forces of the Sons of Darkness, the arm of Belial, the troops of Edon, Moab, and the Sons of Ammon, the Amalekites, Philistia, and the troops of the Kittim of Ashur. Supporting them are those who have violated the covenant. And as Shaya said, this is precisely the beginning of the scroll which I think it's fascinating because, first of all, it tells us this is the rule of the war. This is a text, uh, a rule text. So some people would say it's an apocalypse. Some people would say it's a law text, a rule text. And it's interesting because when we think about the complexity of this text, you can read this text as only like a text that describes how to go to a war, but we can also read so much more into it. And it's interesting that it goes, it starts with telling us that the sons of light will go against those forces. And first of all, it doesn't describe here, it will later, but it doesn't describe here in this passage who are the sons of light, but it tells us who are the sons of darkness. And the sons of darkness are necessarily the arm of Belial, which is an interesting figure. Belial sometimes is translated, some people associated with Satan. Oh, sometimes it's associated with the devil or a demon or a chief of demons. We see his, we have, he has a, his own army. And in the scrolls, it's, when I first started studying the Belial, it was really weird for me because I wanted, uh, I think we all go for this. Like we go for like, what's the meaning of the word itself? Is it used in some other way? How is appear, it appears in other texts? And although it's here, we use as a name. Belial doesn't always appear as a name. Sometimes it's more like an adjective. The translation would be something like worthlessness, uselessness, weakness. But it's really hard to track where the word came from and how it became this figure. But just by the meanings that we see associated with it, we can tell that this is the army of the wicked. This is the army of the, well, the darkness is the army of worthlessness. It's the army of this being or this commander who is also representing worthlessness as like a personification of it. And this is very important because sometimes, particularly nowadays, we imagine these evil figures are like, let's say, because of films and literature, usually we go for like, oh, this is like, human with like red skin, horns and tail and wings and stuff. And here the description, like the physical description is not important. The important is to bring this idea of how it's, uh, it's the adversary and how this adversary remi- reminds us of the worthlessness. And then, of course, it, it mentions all the, all the troops that will be following him. And interesting that we... Of course, we have others, but we also have those who have violated the covenant. So the troops of worthlessness are not only formed by enemies, but we also have those people who also violated the covenant. So people who not follow the laws of God. 
Wait a moment. Those who violate the covenant, doesn't that imply that there are people from within the nation of Israel who are joining the side of darkness, which would mean that there's a side of light, and then there's the side of darkness, which is represented by two groups, the traditional enemies of Israel and unfaithful people within Israel. This begs the question— Which covenant is being broken exactly? One of the problems with the Dead Sea Scrolls is we know they were texts that reflect what we call the Second Temple Judaism, but they might have this group of people that were separate from the others, from other Jews that were reading those texts and producing those texts. Or maybe not. The problem is because they didn't left for us like a text saying, oh, those texts are the ones that we only use here in this small group. And those texts, everyone reads and it's all around. But it's very likely that the covenant they are mentioning here, it's the covenant that they have with God. And that's the covenant that they, the laws of God, they all should follow. And that the wicked priests and others are violating and we have we seen in other scrolls how they mention how there are people even in Israel who are wicked and who are not following the laws of God, who got greedy. And so all of those are joining the arm of Belial. Yeah, I think so. It, it definitely seems to be this implication. And the community represented by the library at Qumran, notice how carefully I said that for various reasons, but the community that's represented in these texts seems to view the current priesthood in Jerusalem, the ones that are controlling the temple, as being very wicked themselves, as being violators of the covenant between God and Israel. So this is from a little bit later on. We're skipping a few lines, several lines. But it says, On the day of their battle against the Kittim, they shall set out for carnage. In three lots shall the children of light brace themselves in battle to strike down iniquity. And in three lots shall the host of Belial gird itself to thrust back the company of God. And with the seventh lot, the mighty hand of God shall bring down the army of Belial and all the angels of his kingdom and all the members of his company. So it's clearly talking about both humans and a supernatural dimension. This is a good example of how tethered the Dead Sea Scroll writers are to previous biblical language and imagery. So children of light stuff, that's not as explicit in the Hebrew Bible, but it does show up in the New Testament. But this idea of, you know, the, the numbers are, are really important here. Uh, three lots shall the children of light brace themselves in battle, and then three lots uh, will the host of Belial gird itself in, in the midst of this war. And uh, the number three in Hebrew thought is really the number of, um, like, a climactic event. And the Dead Sea Scroll writers are drawing on that idea here because what they want to convey is this is, you know, an end time, apocalyptic, climactic event, this battle. And it's interesting that it's the seventh lot. With the seventh lot, God brings down the army of Belial. Well, the number seven is the number of perfection or completeness in Hebrew thought. And then one last thing I would say is this idea of the angels of the kingdom of Belial. So we talked a lot about what Belial might mean. Tupa quite rightly said that sometimes it seems to be a noun, like a proper noun, like a figure, a title. And then sometimes it's like an adjective, you know, worthlessness or or something. Uh, Here it looks like this is, uh, you know, a personal or personified figure because it says that the, the, the children of light will bring down the army of Belial and 
his the angels of his kingdom. And so what we have this idea of is Belial having angels or messengers or some sort of divine beings that are fighting on behalf of Belial. This is the negative inverse of language that we see, for example, from Jesus, where I'm just going to bring one example, which is Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 31, where Jesus talks about the end time, the judgment day, saying that the Son of Man will come and sit on his glorious throne with all of his angels attending him. And so that's kind of a positive use of God or Jesus uh, with with good angels. And here we've got Belial, also a personified divine figure of some kinds, with bad angels. And notice the angels of Belial's kingdom, which is a direct inverse of God's kingdom, uh, which will come at the end of days. So all of this language is, is coming out of certainly the Tanakh, uh, Israel's scriptures, and then it also is is sort of swimming in the same traditional well that we see the, the say the gospel writers swimming in sometime later and so three times the light wins three times the darkness wins and then finally the seventh time the time of perfection and completeness and the the end of the cycle the mighty hand of god triumphs and defeats evil and i think this is really really interesting and provides insight into the mentality of the time because one of the things we see just from that is that in this world the contest between good and evil is very even so to speak there's a lot of good and there's a lot of evil and um evil is trying to overcome good and it can't quite do it and good is trying to overcome evil and it can't quite that can't quite happen either as we see but the hope that's expressed is that in the end, finally, God will have a judgment. And we see this over and over and over again in, like you were saying, the Hebrew Bible, the Gospels, other literature. And so it's a very similar droplet from that well, if you will. The seventh time the mighty hand of God decides it. Notice how careful the Dead Sea Scroll writers are being and actually what they're saying, because sometimes we can miss this. There's a fight against these human of villains, if you will, the, these children of darkness and these divine beings who are working in cahoots with them. But notice what the end goal is to do. It's to actually strike down iniquity, like that is strike down sin. And so we were talking about, you know, like who's like the real villain in the Bible? This is extremely important. And that is like, I would say sin is a real problem. I've talked about this several times over, but sin is like a third party entity that God and human beings have to have to fight alongside each other together throughout throughout life and throughout history. Sin is a real personified entity that's a real issue that needs to be dealt with. And in this battle, I think that a larger kind of symbolic resonance of it is to say, this is the moment where sin is going to be dealt with, where finally God is going to strike down that actual capital S sin that has become such a problem for for God and for humanity. So I think that's really important. I mean, you know, this undergirds kind of the main thesis of some of what the Gospels say, for example, just to bring it into, you know, a New Testament uh, forum. It's no, it's no accident that that Matthew's thesis, that the, the first Gospel in the New Testament, is that Jesus, you'll call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. Um, this is an actual entity that needs to be dealt with. And the Dead Sea Scroll writers, though couching it in militaristic language, that's really what they mean ultimately is the defeat of sin.
See, I told you this would be interesting. We will hear more about the War Scroll on the next episode, which comes out in the new year. We are taking one week off just to be with family. So be sure to like or follow the podcast on whichever podcast program you listen on so you don't miss the next episode. If you love conversations like this one, join us at IBC, where you will have access to many amazing courses that dig into the details of culture and interpretation. You can even earn credit towards Israel Bible Center Certificate Program in Jewish Context and Culture. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related.